At this time, I'd like to invite children to head back to Children's Church, ages 3 to kindergarten. Feel free to head back 3 to 5. Head back for Children's Church and join Miss Maggie. Back there, she'll be your teacher today. I think you'll be talking about the temple, from what I understand. So fun stuff. As kids head back for Children's Church, I'll invite you all to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. We're finishing up kind of a long section of worship and spiritual gifts that Paul deals with in chapters 11 to 14. And we'll be in verses 26 through 40 today of chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. And if you want, if you're able and you're willing, I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read these verses kind of in their totality as we begin. First Corinthians 14, 26 through 40, I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order." Well, Father, help us this morning. We pray that you would speak clearly to us, that you would not be a God of confusion this morning, but a God of order and peace, and you would bring order to a challenging passage, which can be confusing, Lord. Help us to know what you are saying to us through it. We believe your word is your word, and you speak for a reason, and we want to be submitted to it. So speak as a father speaks to his children. Lovingly, encouraging, with clarity, for our good, is that your Son may be praised. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What are the characteristics of true and genuine worship in the Spirit of God? Or another way to ask it, what does spiritual worship really look like? 
What does it mean to worship in the Spirit? To be moved by the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. When you think of being moved by the Holy Spirit, having a movement of the Holy Spirit in church, what comes to your mind? What kind of things do you think of? I've told this story before in a previous sermon, but I'll, I'll tell it again. And some of you may be familiar, familiar with what was known as the Toronto Blessing. It happened in 1994. A charismatic minister from St. Louis named Randy Clark was invited to minister at a vineyard church in Toronto. The leaders of the church in Toronto had been inspired by revivals in South Africa and Argentina. Wanting a similar experience, they invited this minister, Randy Clark, to come speak at the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church with an expectation of seeing a, a new kind of revival there that Randy had experienced elsewhere. They brought him in, and Clark spent 42 of the next 60 days preaching and ministering and holding revival services. At the first revival service, 120 people attended, and there were reports of the Spirit's movement. It was evidenced by animated responses, people rejoicing exuberantly, even laughing uncontrollably and rolling on the ground. The revival meetings continued in almost every evening for the next year, and the church's regular attendance tripled to over a thousand people. And the worship services were characterized by religious ecstasy, uh, euphoria, crying, being slain in the spirit, um, fits of uncontrollable laughter, even some roaring like lions and making other animal noises. Many people even recorded that after attending the revival services, they found silver and gold fillings in their teeth. It became known as the Toronto Blessing. It spread from the Vineyard Church in Toronto. Many who came and visited it took these things back home with them. According to Charisma Magazine, thousands of churches were impacted by the revival as people were seeking a more exuberant form of worship. That pull toward ecstatic, sensational worship is something we probably all feel to some extent. Who doesn't want to see the miraculous or feel something as they come to worship, something outside of the normal routine of day-to-day life. You want to, we all want to at times, feel something as we worship. And we equate that with the Spirit moving among us. I ask again, what does it mean to have spiritual worship? How can we know if our worship is in line with the Spirit of God? And that is what Paul seeks to address in these last few verses as he closes out this section on spiritual gifts and worship in the church. He wants to make one final point for the church in Corinth. And his final point can be summed up like this. This is kind of a summary of the whole message this morning, that worship that is spiritual and beneficial must be submitted to godly order. Worship that is spiritual and beneficial, worship that is in the power of the Spirit and for the building up of the church, must be submitted to godly order. That surprisingly, one of the things that Paul lists here, and his main emphasis in this passage of what defines spiritual worship, is not chaos, actually, but order. That one mark of genuine spiritual worship, more than ecstatic expression, more than uh, feelings of heightened emotion, more than all those things, A mark of true spirituality is truth spoken under control in an orderly fashion with clarity. 
True spiritual worship is marked by clarity and order, not chaos and confusion. Because that is fitting with the character of God. Worship that is spiritual and beneficial must be submitted to godly order. Paul's going to talk about that need for order in three different ways as he moves through this section. The first way in which order is needed is found in verses 26 through 33. First, there must be order in the use of spiritual gifts. Order in the use of spiritual gifts. As they use their gifts, they brought their gifts for the benefit of the church. They were not to compete with one another, shout over one another, go on endlessly, drawing all attention to themselves. Rather, they were to use their gifts in an orderly way. There was to be order in the use of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So again, Paul is giving instructions to the church on how they are to worship together. And as they worship together... uh, they would come bringing different components of the service. Some might have a hymn to sing. Some might have a word from God to share. Some might even have a, a tongue, an interpretation. They'd bring their gifts together for the communal building up of one another. As Paul lists these components, his desire is not to list a complete order of service, that this is what the church must look like in each and every worship service. There are other things that made up the early worship service and our worship services that he doesn't list here. So things like communion or reading of scripture and and interpretation of scripture and prayer are not listed here, but those are foundational things to worship. So he's not intending to list a, I guess, inspired worship service order here. He's just talking about some of the things that happen when the church gather together. And these are some of the things that people bring into the worship service. And one of those things might be a tongue. So we return to the topic of tongues that we've been talking about for a little bit. And as we know, tongues are the ability to speak in a previously unknown language. We talked about that at length last week. And Paul says there that if you have a tongue, most often it's best to keep it to yourself. Why? Because nobody understands what you're saying. So if you speak in tongues, then pray in tongues and have that be a wonderful moment between you and God. But he says here, if you have a tongue that must be shared, there are some rules for how it is to be used, how that gift ought to be used in the church. So he lists a couple of rules for that. First, only two or three at most. If you've ever been uh, to a funeral or a wedding and they said, we're going to have an open mic, you know why, or you may have experienced why, Paul says only two or three at most. We're not not going to let this part of the service go on and on forever. We can control ourselves. Only two or three at most, and also only one at a time. Not mass confusion, people speaking different languages, and third, most importantly, There has to be an interpreter. If there is no interpretation, then there ought to be no tongue. 
Why? Again, as we worship together, we all need to understand what is being said. Paul doesn't want there to be confusion in the church. If there is a tongue but no interpretation, then you can assume that that tongue is just for you and God and nobody else. Which brings up the question, in my years here, I've never seen anybody speak up and say anything with a tongue. What would we do if someone did? I wouldn't automatically discount it. As we'll see later, Paul says, don't forbid tongues. But it would say, does anybody have an interpretation of what was said? And if there is no interpretation, I would say, thank you very much. We are going to completely disregard everything you just said. If somebody has an interpretation that doesn't match up of anything with Scripture and it seems totally other, we're going to say, thank you very much. We're going to disregard everything you just said. And we'll see why. The gifts must be used in order, submitted to Scripture, as we'll see. Paul has similar counsel for those who have a prophecy. Now, what is a prophecy? Again, we've been talking about these things over the last few weeks. If you've been here, you kind of know. Uh, usually when we think of prophecy, we think of being able to predict the future. That's not necessarily what Paul has in mind here. Maybe there are times where a prophetic word said, hey, I think this is going to happen. But generally... In the church, prophecy is a way of saying a word from God in the spirit of God for the good of the church. That's a very broad, generous definition of what prophecy is in the New Testament. A word given from God in the power of the spirit of God for the benefit of the church. Generally, that is a, a simple application of gospel or biblical truth, consistent with what is said in Scripture. That prophetic word could come from preaching, it could come from teaching, from conversation, anywhere where the truth of God may be declared, a prophetic word may be spoken. It's important to note here, who can prophesy? Prophecy is not limited to only those who bear special office in the church. It's not only for leaders. In the Old Testament, Prophet Joel said, Joel 2, 28 29, that one day the Holy Spirit would come upon God's people and all kinds of people would prophesy. That was a sign of the new age, the new covenant of God sending his spirit out into the church that your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So that ability to declare God's word powerfully, to speak God's word, is not limited to only leaders in the church or only men in the church. As Paul's already told us in 1 Corinthians 11, Women prophesy, they declare the word of God. Men do as well. Anybody in the church can speak powerfully if they are gifted the word of God. So does that mean the worship service then was filled with endless prophecies? No. It doesn't mean that everybody came and spoke a word, because Paul says what? Let two or three prophets speak. He caps that as well. He says that if one is standing and another one has a word, then that first one should sit because in the synagogue practice, whoever was speaking would stand up while the rest sat and they would take turns. So if somebody else has a word, that first one sit down, let the other stand. And it's a way of saying, take turns, one at a time, not all at once, no confusion. And importantly, if somebody had a prophetic word, it was to be weighed by the church. Prophecies were not meant just to be taken at face value as from God. Just because somebody says they're speaking from God, you don't have to believe them. 
In fact, it was assumed that if somebody had a prophetic word, the church would weigh it and judge it and test it. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Apostle John says something similar in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So each prophetic word was not to be taken at face value. It was to be tested. How would you know if a prophetic word was true or false? The basic test is, is it in line with the teaching of the apostles handed down to us? Does the prophetic word speak truthfully about Jesus Christ, given what we know from apostolic teaching? Which is another way of saying, is it biblical? Does it line up? with what our word of authority says. Is it submitted to Scripture? Prophets and prophecies did not have their own inherent authority. They had no authority on their own. They had to be submitted to the foundation laid by the apostles in the word of God. Because false prophets and false prophecies are a danger to the church and always have been. From the earliest moments on, there's a group known as the Montanists, following a guy named Montanus. I don't think he founded Montana. This is over in Turkey. The Montanists, or a group led by this man, this is second century, this is right after kind of the apostles and in the middle of the apostolic fathers as they're setting the foundation for the church to come. There's this group that comes along led by this one man and they followed a strict code of rigid holiness, a strict ethical code. He also taught that the world was ending soon so the church should separate from the world because the world was being judged. And, and he also taught, and this group taught, that prophetic words would bring a new revelation that actually superseded the authority of the New Testament. They would prophesy, and these prophecies that they had were to be taken as gospel truth even over the New Testament, which led the group into all sorts of error and was denounced as heresy by the early church. Very early on, the church dealt with this issue. said, no, prophecy does not supersede the authority of the New Testament or the apostolic fathers, is to be submitted to the word of the apostles in Jesus Christ. False prophecy has done great damage not only to the church, but to the world. You can think of several major religions which are founded upon false prophetic visions and words. Mormonism. What is it founded upon? A vision received from Joseph Smith. Islam, what is it founded upon? A prophet, Muhammad, and the visions he received. And they set him up as a prophet above the others. Both of these, which are technically cults, aberrations and deviations from biblical truth, are founded upon false teaching about Jesus denying his full divinity or humanity, denying his death on the cross and resurrection. And when these prophetic words are not submitted to Scripture, there is great damage. So, from the very beginning, recognizing the danger, 
Paul says, if you have a word from God, it has to be submitted to the word of God. And some might say, but what am I supposed to do, though, if God gives me a word and I can't help myself? Am I supposed to not listen to the Spirit? Even if three others have spoken and I'm the sixth in line and I just feel it in my bones that God gave me this word and God told me and I have to say it. I, I cannot control myself. And what does Paul say? Spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets, which is another way of saying control yourself. If you're a prophet, your spirit is subject to you. Which is another way of saying if the spirit is actually moving in you, you will not be out of control, and you can control yourself, and you can be quiet. Two or three have already spoken. You may feel like God gave you a word. God gave you a word for yourself and not for everybody. Which I find fascinating what Paul is saying here. He puts order into the church. Two or three at most, let there be interpreter. Two or three at most, whole church has to judge it and weigh it and see if it's true with what we know of Jesus. And if there are more who want to speak, Paul says, oh, that's, sorry, cut it off, cap it. I don't care how the Spirit's feeling like it's moving in you and all that. Control yourself. Which tells us that being in the Spirit does not mean being out of control. Quite the opposite, being in the power of the Spirit means being disciplined and controlled. Think about what you see in the Gospels. Who are those in the Gospels who cannot control themselves, who seem to be controlled by something else? They're the ones who have spirits in them that are sent into pigs, right? It is those who are filled, not with the Spirit of God, but with other kind of spirits who are out of control. To be in the Spirit of God is to be under control. Spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. Why? Because God, the God of peace, not of confusion, it's who he is in himself. He is in harmony within himself. A triune God, one God, three persons, who are in constant harmony with one another, never in confusion. There's never debate between Father, Son, and Spirit. There's never disagreement. There's never lack of order. There's always harmony and peace and order within God himself. It's who he is by his nature, a God of peace and harmony and unity. And so it ought to be in the church. There should be order in the use of spiritual gifts. Also, Paul says, in a fun little section, order in the speech of men and women. Verses 33, second half of 33 through 35, Paul speaks to the speech of men and women in the church. And his point here is that there should be order in the speech of men and women, just as there's order in the use of spiritual gifts. These are challenging verses. They sound offensive to our ears. You, you kind of hear them grate on your ears as we read them. But we trust that God's word is good if we understand it rightly. So let's attempt to do that now. As we read verses 33 through 35, order in the speech of men and women. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
Now, before we say anything, notice what Paul says first. As in all the churches of the saints, which means what? Paul is not just giving this for the church in Corinth. What he is saying here applies to all churches. Wherever saints gather together, wherever there are Christians who are gathered together, this applies to them all. So he's laying down kind of a a universally applicable code of conduct for the church. And then he says, as in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent in the churches. And there are two reasons this is challenging for us. One, it just sounds offensive, that doesn't sound right. But two, it seems to totally contradict what Paul's already said in this book. If you can turn back your mind to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, what are verses 2 through 16 about? They're about how women should pray and prophesy in the church. So there, in chapter 11, Paul says, women are given gifts by God and should speak in the church and pray and prophesy. Now it seems like he's saying just the opposite. They should keep silent. What is he talking about here? And how do we understand that? There's a ton of solutions that people have proposed. Most of them not very good. Some people say, well, this is just not supposed to be part of the Bible, which is the first resort of many scholars whenever there's something we don't like. Uh, it's a textual error, manuscript problem. Right? That's kind of intellectually dishonest, lazy. How do we know what is and is not supposed to be in your scripture? Right? It brings up all sorts of questions, but that's a bad way of approaching this. There are others who say, well, Paul's just wrong. Paul's just wrong here. Uh, you know, he, he's a woman hater, What he says is wrong and offensive, so we just should just discard it. Also not a great approach. How do you determine when Paul is right? Paul isn't the only one who says offensive things in Scripture. Do you just say, well, they're wrong anytime you come across something offensive? Jesus says a lot of offensive stuff. Often what is offensive to us is determined by culture around us. Do we think culture should determine scriptural truth? How much do you trust culture? How much do you trust you? Do we think we ought to stand in authority over Scripture and say, this is right, this is wrong, and we're just going to take little parts that we think? Paul's going to address that attitude in a few verses. No, we want to submit ourselves to all of Scripture, knowing that there's not only a human author of Scripture, there is a spiritual author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, who authored all these words, as well through the apostles. So, The Holy Spirit is saying this to us. So what is the Holy Spirit saying? Some have said, well, maybe what this means is is that there is a cultural, situational problem only in Corinth, and that in Corinth there were a lot of uneducated, frankly noisy, heretical women who were speaking up too much, and Paul's addressing that issue. That's one of the ways of solving this challenging text. But I think there's some problems with that approach. One, Paul isn't just addressing Corinth when he says this. Remember, he says, Oz and all the churches. So he lays out a universal rule. That seems like overkill to say, here's a local problem in Corinth, and I'm just saying this for all churches then forever. Also, it's not very historically accurate to say that women were uneducated. Women were educated, often educated. 
even in Roman times. Nor were they especially prone to be noisy or heretical. There are men who are also noisy and heretical in church. There are plenty of characters in the New Testament who bring heresy in and speak too much. Why would Paul address only a few challenging women by saying all women should just be quiet? That's actually, frankly, kind of sexist. Not very... I don't think a good approach to what is going on here in this text. So what is going on? I think context tells us what the situation is. What is going on in the context of this passage? What has Paul just been talking about? Prophecy and the weighing, the judging of the prophetic word. We know from 1 Corinthians 11, women were allowed to prophesy and speak, Paul isn't talking about that. He's talking about what the church does as it judges and assesses what has been spoken. And it's up to the church, and I think specifically the male leaders of the church, to determine is that heresy, should that be rebuked, should that be corrected or affirmed. And Paul's saying in this context, women or wives should be silent while the males of the church and male leaders of the church determine either to affirm or correct or rebuke what has been said. Paul calls on the women to be passive, let the men take the active lead, and especially, I think, the elders and teachers of the church. Why does this responsibility of assessing prophetic words fall on the males specifically? Paul says, because of what is written in the law. When he says that, I don't think he's referring to a specific verse. He's saying what is written in the law of Moses, what Moses has written down for us. He said, well, what has Moses written for us on this? I think what Paul has in mind is referring back to Genesis and Genesis 2 and the fact that men were created first and women second out of man. And because of this, because of the priority in chronology and that men were created first, they're designed by God, they have responsibility and leadership over the community. And the women are to follow the men in this because of divine creation order. And you might ask, well, where did I pull that from? Why do I think that's what's going on here? Well, it's because what Paul Paul already said in 1 Corinthians 11. He's already addressed this. He's already given his reason for this. He's already referenced this just a few chapters earlier. And that would be in the minds of people as they're reading this letter. Oh, yeah, Paul already said this. In chapter 11, he said, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He already made that point in talking about order in the church of men and women. It's the same thing he says in 1 Timothy 2, when scripture teaches that women are not to exercise authority and instruction roles over men in the church. Paul goes back to creation and order, so that men were made first and women second. That's part of God's design and plan, and that forces men to take responsibility and lead, and that this design should not be disordered or upended. So Paul's not saying that women should be silent at all times and never heard in church. We know he says just the opposite. Women should use their gifts and speak. Nor is he saying that women are inferior or lesser value, nor is he saying that they're more gullible, more prone to heresy, or that they should not use their gifts. Paul's not saying any of those things. He's not saying women shouldn't pray or speak God's word. 
He is saying that God laid out an order in creation that should be reflected in the church, and that men, especially male leaders, should be responsible for evaluating, correcting, establishing the doctrine of the church, which is what happens when you're weighing and assessing prophetic words. So it's likely that in the disorder of Corinthian worship, women were overstepping some boundaries of male and female. As this was happening, they were speaking over and around their husbands. So Paul corrects them and says, instead of speaking over your husbands and going around them, respect your husband, respect that God has given him a leadership role in your marriage, and let him be your first stop for having these conversations, theology and doctrine. Don't make a confusing scene of chaos in the church. Talk at home. Talk to your husband first. That will not only show him respect, it will also strengthen him and force him to learn so that he may lead. I think that's what Paul is saying here, just based on what he's already said in 1 Corinthians 11. And some of you may still find that offensive. God would differentiate between men and women in that way and give different roles and responsibilities. But I think, and I would challenge you, that we all instinctively know the goodness of this teaching. I'm going to speak a little bit boldly there. But I think deep inside, you know men and women were different. You know that is an, an accident. You know there must be some design in that. And you know that it ought to be reflected in some ways we meet together. I know you know this because, for example, if I were to say, starting this week, I think I'm going to take a group of young men in the church, some husbands, and we're going to have a Tuesday morning prayer time. We're all going to pray together, and I'm going to lead them. How would the wives in the church respond to that? You'd say, oh, great, amen. Please do. Now, if I said, hey, this week, this Tuesday morning, I'm going to take a bunch of the young wives in the church, and we're going to have a prayer time together, and I'm going to lead all these women. I think a bunch of you would say, oh, well, that seems weird. Something seems wrong about that. Hey, gentlemen, don't worry, I'm going to lead your wives for a bit. How many of you husbands say, no, totally cool with me? Or would you feel something of, huh, feels like you're crossing a boundary. Husbands, don't worry. I'll take leadership of your wife for you and I'll just do it all. No, you would say, dude, you're crossing the line because you know there's something of your role and responsibility there. That's kind of hardwired into us. We know that men and women have different places, roles. That doesn't mean unequal in value, unequal in gifting, unequal in importance. There are certain situations where our maleness or femaleness matters. And this is one of those areas in keeping order in the church, particularly in this situation of weighing prophecy and establishing doctrine and teaching in the church. And that's consistent with what the rest of the New Testament says. The New Testament never says anything really counter to that. Not just from Paul, but from Peter and others. God has given responsibilities to husbands and to wives, and there to be an order in the church. And ultimately, all are to be in submission to the teaching of the apostles and prophets laid down in the New Testament. And that's Paul's final point in verses 36 through 40. Paul calls for spiritual order in the church. 
there should be order and submission to apostolic authority. In other words, part of keeping order is submitting ourselves, all of us, to what the apostles have said. Verse 36. Was it from you the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is Paul's final word for them, kind of a summary statement. And it's actually pretty bold. Basically, Paul is saying, submit to what I'm saying, because what I'm saying is from the Lord. He challenges the Corinthians. Corinthians may have said, you know, this is the way we do it. We are not going to listen to what you say. We have our own feelings and thoughts about this. So Paul says, oh, are you the only ones who have received the word of God? Did scripture come from you? You guys are the center of this whole thing? You have your own thoughts and opinions, do you? So immediately Paul recognizes, you may want to push back on some of what I've said. But no, you're not the only ones who have scripture. This is the practice in all the churches, and they have the word of God too. So don't think you're a special case or that you could do things differently than the rest of the church does them. But you, as in all churches, are to be submitted to the commands of the Lord. Paul gives them a test to see if their spirituality is genuine. There's certain tests you can do to see if something is genuine. For example, if you have a diamond, I've learned there is a little test you can do to see if your diamond is genuine. Maybe don't do it now uh, in case somebody got a false one and wouldn't want to cause a disruption in the church. But if you have a diamond, you can, from what I understand, breathe on it, see if you can cause it to fog up. If that fog remains for three seconds, it's a fake. Because a diamond will not stay fogged, diamonds dissipate heat instantaneously. So if you're able to fog up your diamond and it stays for three seconds or so, chances are you have a false one. The test of whether or not that is genuine. Well, Paul lays out a test to see whether or not something is genuinely in the spirit, whether the spirit is genuine in the church. And what is that test? If anyone is spiritual, if anyone is a prophet, he'll acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are command of the Lord. This is the test of true spirituality. More than high emotion, more than charismatic gifts, more than whether or not a church is packed on the inside and buzzing with excitement, more than all those things, the true test of a spiritual church is submission to the apostles' teaching. We know from Revelation it is very possible to have a church that has the appearance of being alive, but inside is dead. Something that can appear really exciting and wonderful and exuberant and rolling on the ground, fantastic. But it is nothing of the Spirit. Here's the test of whether something is spiritual. Is it in submission to the Word of God handed down by Paul and other apostles? Those who ignore the word of God will be ignored, which is a way of saying, reject the word of God and you'll be rejected. In the same way Jesus says, those who deny me before the Father, I will deny. 
those who reject the word of Paul will be rejected or ignored. And I don't think he's just saying there in the context of the church. I think he's saying in the final context, in the end, in judgment, those who do not recognize what Paul is saying will not be recognized. Those who reject the New Testament word in the end will be rejected. He gives them a stern warning and a final encouragement of spiritual gifts. Don't forbid tongues. So after all this, Paul's not against tongues. Don't forbid them. But if they're there, lay some rules. Two or three, one at a time, has to be interpreter. He's not saying you have to have tongues. He's just saying don't forbid them. There's a difference. He is saying desire prophecy. Go after, seek, pray for a clear word from God in the power of the Spirit. And let all be done, not in chaos, not in confusion, but in order and peace. Why? Because our God is a God of order. The Lord was not out of control when he sent his son to die for us. God's plan to send his son to save us was not a plan of reckless, out-of-control love. It was a definite, thoughtful specific, intentional plan to send the Son to die for us. And the Son, as he came, did so in harmonious submission to the Father and lived a life not out of control, but a life of discipline, not chasing his own feelings, but Lord, thy will be done, all the way to the point of death on the cross for us. And the Spirit, as he led Jesus Christ, did not lead Jesus to follow his own way, but led Jesus all the way in power to follow God's plan. And by the Spirit's power, disciplined himself to die and then power rise again. All of this because God is a God of order and peace and harmony and he has a plan to bring order and peace and harmony to our chaotic world that is disordered by sin and it starts with the ordered plan of salvation it'll end in God's timing when the sun will return and finally bring all this chaos that is ripped apart by all our sin back into perfect order and peace. God is a God of peace. It's where he's taking all of this. And it's what should define our worship. And when I say that, I should have said this at the beginning, I don't mean dispassionate. I don't mean unemotional. I don't mean stoic. But all those things we passionately bring our worship ordered by the God of peace and harmony and unity. And that is, according to Paul, in the summation of all he said, what worship looks like. People in love with the Lord who have spoken clearly and powerfully to them. Would you pray with me?
Father, help us to submit our own spirits to what you have to say, to submit our own spirits to one another. That as we worship, Lord, we would do so in spirit and truth. That we would do so in a way you have ordered out for us. Not contending with one another, not fighting for our own way, not upset when we don't get what we want, which we are all prone to. Lord, disciplined under your word, seeking not first our own way, not our own good, but seeking what will build others up, what will encourage somebody else here, what will bring them good. How can I minister to others, Lord? Let that be our spirit. Let it be controlled by your word and your truth. And praise of the Son who saves us. We thank you, Lord. Amen.